Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey listeners, a warning for our episode today. We're going to be talking about two movies that have content spanning just about every warning you can imagine. So if that's not for you, we completely understand. One is more critically acclaimed than the other. And if you like Nick Cave and prestige period dramas, join us for the second half of our episode at the 31 minute mark. Okay, on with the show. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. The Australian film industry has a path remarkably similar to the Canadian film industry. Tired of being culturally inundated by other countries' films, the late 60s government of Australia decided to set up a series of funding bodies and tax credits and loosen censorship laws to enable filmmakers to make stories that represented the people of Australia. Like the Canadian film industry, this produced some films of great artistic merit and critical acclaim, like Picnic at Hanging Rock. It also produced a parade of graphic sex comedies and exploitation movies known as Ozploitation. Before we get into our movies today, let's get a little bit into Ozploitation and what blazed the path for two of our movies today, because they're both definitely drawing from this tradition. Cam, you watched the same documentary I did, Not Quite Hollywood, which if you're interested in this, it's, it's worth your time. Yeah, that's a great documentary. It's a really interesting look, I think, especially at how the public uh, and artistic filmmakers even decided that the stuff the government was making, which was very staid kind of costume dramas, didn't necessarily reflect Australian culture at large and how people like Barry Humphreys uh, with his Barry McKenzie movies realized that they could hit huge with these kind of big swings of, uh, you know, rude exploitation or action or horror that essentially that the culture of Australia actually craved uh, these big kind of wild swings that we now know as a, a regular part of Australian culture. But then also there's this real push-pull in the Australian industry, which I think exists to today, between private funding and public funding. And public funding being, like, obviously edging a bit more, more towards, like, my brilliant career and stuff. And then the private funding, somebody like George Miller, uh, Mad Max was entirely funded by his buddies who were doctors. So it's like, like when your highest, <laughs> when one of your biggest figures is, like, Sam Raimi. That's kind of wild. And I think what you're seeing here with these movies, too, one of them is a UK film, it's worth saying, but uh, that it's it's back to kind of it, it had kind of flowed away. The movies we're going to talk about were at the start of another boom of Australian film when Australian film had kind of been on the rocks post the 80s, 90s boom. Mm -hmm. 
I think what's interesting to me about Australian film is that um, a lot of Canadians were going to Australia to make movies mm-hmm. because they hit on things way earlier than Canadian cinema does. And one of them is Ted Kotcheff, uh, who I had the pleasure of interviewing once to talk about um, Duddy Kravitz, uh, which uh, if people aren't familiar with it, that one's totally worth your time. Great Richard Dreyfus performance. And he directed this extremely high profile, still considered like one of the gold standard movies called Wake in Fright, which is also very similar to a lot of our movies today. Yeah. 71. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 The proposition, especially, I think, has has a lot yeah. of like hat tips to Wake and Fright, and and both of these films. Yeah, it's kind of it's. I also think I think an ebb and flow, weirdly, of you know the mythology of Australia, because a lot of uh, Wolf Creek, for instance, is commenting on there was that weird kind of you know, <laughs> I don't even know like like the the Giuliani's New York of Australia in the eighties, where it was like Bushmen are great and uh, it's fun to be a white guy in Australia, <laughs> and then <laughs> these movies are like uh, those guys are terrible, which is the, the wake and fright notion that essentially mm-hmm. like the outback will twist you and. Uh, and then also just like, yeah, hey, what about all those indigenous people <laughs> is what Nick Cave <laughs> is basically saying. Uh, you know, this country was founded on uh, genocide, you know. I think what's uh, interesting to me and the, that they bring up in the documentary is talking about all the boundary pushing they were doing in terms of uh, sexual content and violence. And when um, the censorship laws uh, came out, it was just kind of this free for all. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing was that it... A lot of these were not safe sets. Like they were doing mm, these unbelievably yeah. wild stunts. Like you watch something like Mad Max and you're seeing the mm. stunts and they're actually doing those things. And from my understanding, no one was really seriously injured on that set. But there was other sets where like people died and, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, women were put in positions where they should not have been put into. Oh, and yeah. then adding dehydration and yes, potentially true. 50 <laughs> degree heat, which still was an issue, obviously, on yeah. both of these films, the proposition, especially. I mean, you can be safe, but you're still potentially going to die from heat stroke. Totally. Yeah, well, and there's like, I think that there's guys like Brian Trenchard Smith who are like, they were as much stunt coordinators as they are. You know, guys who could do this without killing somebody quite often yeah. rose in the ranks. But at the same time, I think that that's where like, uh, it, it's interesting because like the, when you think of these two, it's it almost seems like these two industries. But uh, another thing that Australia had that Canada didn't is they're the same. Like if we're talking about uh, John Jarrett, which we will be, he was in Picnic and Hanging Rock. He was in Wake and Fright. <laughs> like this guy was in it all. It's it's like the same mm-hmm. pool of people kind of interacting. And not saying that like you know Jane Campion, Elias Coteus. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. And I mean, obviously that they have the, the connection to a- the Asian film industry, which isn't here. They have the UK connection. Um, yeah, it's very, very curious and unique. And it also seems like one that kind of can't can't be totally toppled because whenever it's on its back, like here, like in the early 2000s, it just goes, oh, wait a minute, we can make those <laughs> crazy exploitation movies that people like, you know? And, and then they talk about how, like, the Italians started to make Giallo remakes of their exploitation sure. films that were already Giallo and just try to, like, up the stakes, yeah. like Patrick, which is oh, a bonkers so film good. people haven't seen. Next it. of Kin, which I think John Jarrison as well, yes. is very yeah. good. So good. I think a lot of these are being rediscovered. Wake and Fright was one that I believe had not been released in Canada until the uh-huh. last couple decades, uh, which is We get wild. a lot of viewer requests for Wake mm-hmm. and Fright, um, which is not, it's not the easiest film to program because of how it was funded and what yeah. different companies it belongs to but it has been recently restored um and yeah when we were filming the show on 1971 i had a couple people on our crew just going like hey have you ever considered wake and fright and i was like 
I we didn't, but we probably should have. Mm. Like I I haven't seen it, so I I'm really excited. Oh, it's uh, if you thought the proposition was grim, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I I good. liked yeah. it a lot. I like the proposition too, but it's it's really good. And Ted Kotcheff is an extremely uh, versatile and unusual sure, director. Sure. Like uh, people will also know him from doing Fun with Dick and Jane, as well as uh, Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Like his uh, life has been very eclectic. Uh, but like if you're also a big Jamie Lee Curtis fan. Mm. There's a movie called Roadwork, which like I don't know why we don't talk yeah. about that one in the same breath as like Halloween. It's awesome. Yeah. She's great in it. It's super fun. Yeah, they're they're all very interesting. And and I think that again, if we're comparing it directly to the Canadian industry, I think that there's this idea which I enjoy. That's the difference between Australia and Canada is also that like Canada was meant to be this even in the bad mythology that we've pretty much rejected. It's this land of plenty that people wanted to go to that was a paradise just there for your taking. And Australia is this miserable place that you're forced <laughs> to go. And the 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 scenery is always evil in Australia for the most part. You know, like it oh. is used to be evil. I think that's the perfect place to take us into Wolf Creek. Oh, boy. So in the grand tradition of movies that pushed boundaries, mostly of bad taste, but boundaries nonetheless, comes the brutal, disturbing, and genre-defining Wolf Creek. That genre is, of course, known colloquially as torture porn. Uh, Now, torture porn is defined as a movie with a series of escalating ultra-violent scenarios with very little plot, no moral compass, and few, if any, survivors. Saw is often often cited as kicking off the trend, although most critics don't classify it as torture porn due to its story and moral lesson at the core, as Jigsaw sets people up to, as Cam so deftly puts it, cut off a limb to appreciate life more. So most people consider the granddaddy of them all to be hostile. However, Wolf Creek was there the year before. Inspired by Australian road slasher movies like Roadworks and the cavalcade of serial killer stories, both real and legendary, coming out of Australia, it's a movie that repulsed critics on release but garnered two sequels, one soon to be released, and two seasons of a TV series, which tells you how much money this thing made. We, dear listeners, watched it just for you. (laughs) So please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Damn. <laughs> plot summary. And I say plot in yeah, quotes. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I, I think we'll get into it. But I do think that this also stands a bit aside of torture porn just because of how yeah. it's laid out. Um, but yeah, the, the main plot of this film is that uh, Liz and Christy are two British tourists. Uh, they're enjoying themselves uh, uh, touring Australia, you know, getting drunk, having fun. Uh, they, they're they uh, teamed up with Ben, a, a local, uh, and he convinces them to go to this uh, Wolf Creek State Park, this big crater. Um, they buy a beater of a car and, and head down there. On the way, they run afoul, as you do, of some weird locals, and immediately kind of the tension ramps up. Uh, then their car breaks down, uh, and they are luckily, question mark, found by Mick Taylor, a uh, real uh, man of the land. Uh, and he takes them <laughs> back to his place, uh, and uh, he's evil. And <laughs> he, he, he attacks and murders them, basically. Um, or uh, maybe one escapes, maybe not. You'll, you'll, we'll find out, I guess. Yeah, what what was interesting to me is I did see this when it came out within a few years of its mm. release, probably when it hit home media in Canada. So let's say 2007, 2008. 
and it upset me so much. Like I, as Becky always points out, I'm a bit of a weenie, but like (laughs) this really, really upset me. And so I, despite encouraging these two films to be on the podcast, was horrified at the idea of having to rewatch this. Um, But I have to say, as a weenie, it is so taut and so Mm -hmm. suspenseful and so well-structured. And yes, there's incredible graphic violence, but it, I, I do think it kind of is on the right side of gratuitous. It's mm-hmm. not as bad as I had remembered it. Um, don't get me wrong. It is still very disturbing. But yeah, just the the pacing of this where um, I think you pointed it out, Be- Becky, earlier, like 45 minutes of kind of buildup of like the beauty of being tourists, tourists and then even less than 45 minutes mm-hmm. of being completely heinous. And I watched this and could appreciate 100% that this is probably... 2000s horror at its best and most effective um because i don't care for hostile and saw in case anyone sure. is concerned <laughs> <laughs> um i think for this one for me it's uh this was also a tough watch for me i don't like watching as we know one of my buttons is people who are in a situation and cannot get out yes. it really kind of bothers me this one for me I- I hesitate to say I enjoyed it because I don't think that's the word, but I will say I appreciated it as an incredible example of the genre and also the skill that went into creating an environment where the audience doesn't feel safe, Mm -hmm. but having read about what life was like on set where these people were totally 100% safe and there was a commitment to a safe set, everybody came out okay. Like it was, I really appreciate that and the filmmaking of Greg Greg McLean and the stuff he's gone on to do since, which I also quite enjoy. a great crocodile movie where they eat people and everyone knows I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's you love crocodile movies. You do, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's only so many, but yeah, it's uh, a. <laughs> it's. I think the interesting thing is that this movie gets lumped a lot with the hostels and stuff, but it's really more of like a cat and mouse thing because the torture scenes are pretty minimal and they're like a couple minutes long. Uh, and, and for the most part, also, I think, Becky, what you say is like, like they can't get out. It is very much a cat and mouse thing because they get away a lot. Like, uh, yeah. he is not necessarily the best at what he does. Uh, so these guys uh, manage to run away and hide quite a bit and and there's turns uh, and, and who you think is the main character i think is like a smart thing too like you don't you don't know who's gonna survive really because it keeps switching perspectives which is interesting because this is based on and it's complicated Mm. basically two real life serial killers specifically two totally separate people that were killing in different time periods uh two different trials Mm -hmm. as well like one of which is still you know, he, he was tried for the murder of a, a male tourist, but they never found his body. Mm-hmm. Um, and only the sort of the girl got away um, in real life, Leah, uh, and was able to testify. Um, but he, going into that history just makes watching this film, I think, even more impressive because it's really playing with the idea that most Australian viewers, and I would argue probably UK as well, mm-hmm. would be so familiar with these crimes. This was front page news for years. Um not so in North America, obviously. So that mystery is preserved for us. We don't know who's yeah. going to survive. And yet still the film plays with the survivors um, or singular survivor uh, and your audience expectations of the final girl and the real crimes. 
Yeah. So there's two crimes that these are based on. The first is Ivan Millet, which is known as the backpack murders. Yeah. Like when the mm. film says it's based on a true story, that's it's one. That's one of the ones. Um, and that was someone who was killing people. It, not actually in the outback. It was in um a forest. Mm. Um, but that one was he was killing tourists specifically. There was a couple. There was a German couple. There was a British couple. And um, and that was in uh, the late just, 80s, early 90s, right? So this is actually correct. what the screenplay is based on because he was yeah. writing the screenplay I think in 96, 97 mm-hmm. and then that's right the second murder happens while he's writing yeah. the screenplay the unsolved one which is oh what's his name um, Brad Murdoch yeah. Brad Murdoch, Murdoch murdered yeah. uh, Peter Fa- uh, Falconio I believe yeah. and that's the one where they, 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 they never couldn't found find the body, the body. Yeah. yeah it's it's interesting like you say because he, he was he'd written a script that was like a slasher script but couldn't break it and then he said the inspiration of these real murders is what made it like better ugh Man, yeah. oh man. And- <laughs> he seems like one of those guys. Like, I don't want to put the put any word. I mean, number one, I really like his work. Mm-hmm. And I think he mm-hmm. seems like a pretty cool guy. So I will say that out there, not knowing him personally. Um, but uh, he seems like someone who is really Australian, despite being Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, he really takes offense and, and really wants to talk a lot about tourism toting that really happened in the 80s and 90s of like Crocodile Dundee where this character was actually not a good person but everyone's like yeah that's the smiling representation of us and he wanted to invert the Crocodile Dundee Paul Hogan character and even like Barry McKenzie and flip it on its head and go no (laughs) this is actually what the behavior looks like and it's not okay and I think that's really cool. He should be uh, drinking more and (sighs) barfing more if he wants to be like Barry McKenzie. (laughs) Yeah there's definitely like a that's I'm not going to say there's a line like that's you know that's not a knife this is a knife but there are little I mean there is literally that there is. There's two. There are two of them. <laughs> they make fun of it. That's not a knife. This is a knife. It's not without its subtlety because this is two British women and he's a killer that is like xenophobic and believes that like he is Australia, which is an interesting thing. And I also think that there's like a lot of people link this again to the kind of tortury genre, which again, a very small genre, barely really existed. It's it's hostile and saw mostly in America. There's other other violent things in the area, but it's not quite there. But then the next uh, thing that I think it also really inspired was the real turn to Australian true crime films, which had a real boom, like Animal That's Kingdom and Snowtown Murders were all pretty quickly after this. And that has now become a whole industry in and of itself, where I think that there's few Australian crimes that don't have a movie or a TV series based on them now. What interested me watching this this time, I had completely forgotten the sort of supernatural element to this plot, which obviously... Um, isn't pulled from the news headlines. But pretty early in the film, when they're visiting Wolf Creek, the crater, uh, their watches stop, like mm. which is very Picnic at Hanging Rock, yeah. right? That mysterious Australian uh, geography that has obvious evil intents. Um, I, I mean, I am a huge fan of Picnic at Hanging Rock. That is one of my favorite horror films. I've shown it as a curator you know, in October, <laughs> like <laughs> it is a horror film to me. Um, and I thought those supernatural elements gave the story a lot more dimension and gave the villain kind of supernatural. Like, you're right, he's bad. Like, mm-hmm. he, he keeps putting the keys in the wrong spot and is not a very effective killer. But he's so pure evil that that supernatural part where their their car breaks down in this area and their watches are all stopped gave made it scarier for me. Sure. And he does come back in a few, like, he survives a few things where you're like, whoa. <laughs> I yeah, didn't, I didn't do that. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But for me, I think there's a cleverness to playing with 
like the video home video camera stuff right because one mm. of the things he does you see how prolific he is because he keeps people's home videos yeah. of like and every in every scenario you see he's done the exact same thing um and then in the video where they have uh the video they have their own personal video you see that he was actually at the bar yeah. that they were at it's kind of revealed and in the probably background. messing so, like, with been, their car in advance and he stalked them, them the yeah. whole time i mean it's a really mm. smart way of revealing to the audience this at the same time it's a revelation for the character so you're never quite ahead of everything mm-hmm. you don't know what's happening next you don't have that dramatic irony which makes it more frightening i i really dig it i think also this being shot on almost entirely hd video mm-hmm. um and it doesn't look cheap like i think a lot of video yeah, in the early 2000s can look pretty crap but um you know and this is before a lot of big directors like fincher were using video but uh it looks really good. It's not just that it looks good. It looks intimate. Mm. So a lot of mm. the suffering and a lot of the, what you're talking about, Becky, like the discovery of the actual crimes, because it's on HD video, it almost feels like surveillance at a certain point and that you're right mm. there with them. It, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's anti-cinematic, but it kind of is. Whereas if this was like in, you know, ultra widescreen cinemascope, like bright technicolor, I think it would have a bit of a, a distance, a layer that could protect you. Well, and the lack of variety of angles as well. Specifically, I'm yes. thinking of the scene the where on. the woman has, yeah, where the woman has just gotten out of the, um, uh, out of her bindings and she sees him assaulting her friend mm-hmm. for the first time and she's realized the situation they're in. That scene was shot with the camera crew outside of the room, um, shooting from a, the same angle that she would be watching. And at one point, uh, Greg McLean actually went in and stopped the scene because he thought that she actually was hurting, was in danger because her performance is so strong. And apparently both actors just look at him like, why are you stopping <laughs> yeah. us? Like we're right yeah. in the middle of the groove here. I like that this this movie seems like it has a lot of like method acting, but the right way where like everybody's in yeah. on it and happy with it, which is is always nice the, to the hear. anti-cumberbatch method. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to go into our villain a bit? Because he's Mm -hmm. also playing with um, some knowledge of Australian history that might not be familiar to a North American. Yeah, it's it's worth saying I I have to shout out our our local uh, Hollywood suite Australian, Scott McInnes, because he I I put like picked his brain. I was like, do you have any like stuff about uh, Wolf Creek? And he said that the very interesting thing is that John Jarrett at the time for for his generation, which, you know, is is young and would have been kind of the target for Wolf Creek. John Jarrett was the host of a kid show uh, called Play Play School. So it was wild to and also I think right before he had a lot of gardening and home reno shows. So he's not what you would think. But like I say, he's a guy that's in Picnic and Hanging Rock and stuff. This is a guy who's been acting forever Uh, and then also ends up being like it's very interesting because Greg McClain is like they did not go in expecting uh, to being like we want John Jarrett Uh, but he said he came in I believe he's the only person that auditioned because he nailed it so hard in the audition (laughs) and they were like oh and then also John Jarrett like went out into the outback and like lived out in the outback to try to be like get into the mentality uh i love yeah it's very interesting and he came up with the weird laugh himself so it's cool that he loves this character which is and i think it's gone on to define a lot of his his later career it gave him a big resurgence but also sort of typecast him but i don't think he cares because he comes back to play him every time 
it would be like Fred Penner being yeah, cast yes. in a Canadian torture porn. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we had the today's special guy as the Phantom of the Opera, but there, there's no real equivalent. It's it's kind of wild. Or like, I don't even know, like a gardening show. That's what I love. <laughs> like, what's, yeah. <laughs> but he's going like going all the way back. I mean, he's in Next to Kin yeah, as well. Yeah. Like, he's Australian horror royalty. And yeah. then he goes into this. But I mean, that kind of shows you like like Canada, the size of the, the community of yeah. film and television that you'd have to take all these jobs to keep making money to continue oh on, yeah and right? i mean that's what you see where it's like guy pierce was on neighbors you know like it's, it's yeah. they, they're all oh my God. interconnected yeah, you know? i mean guy all of these neighbors. guys were on neighbors it's pretty hard to find somebody <laughs> who doesn't show up on neighbors uh but yeah it's it's, it's very cool and I, it's just neat to see that he gets that role and really understands and that subtlety and i think probably a lot of how he played it informed the sequels and the tv shows and stuff like that the TV show is interesting because it does have a feminist bent to mm-hmm. it where it's basically like a role reversal where the first episode is him taking down this young woman's family and then she escapes and then the rest of the series is her hunting him down. Mm-hmm. So it's a neat little... Because sure. I, mean, I was like, how would you make a TV series yeah, about yeah. <laughs> this? Would it be like, you know, ep- every episode was like self-contained? But that's not what and happens. That, yeah. it's, a, it's a reversal of the cat and mouse, which is It's like cool. he's not a character you really want to follow either. No. Because he's like... <laughs> He's racist and a uh, weirdo. And and, yeah. He is one of those characters where, like, the less you know about him, the scarier he is. Yeah, yeah. that's true. You're right, because, like, he, I, I, coming back to a point that Cam made, he does, he's not perfect. He's not, he's, he's not supernatural. He's not like Michael Myers. He makes mistakes. Mm. He, and I, this, watching this, I'm kind of in this, like, survivalist um, mode sure. right now because I was watching Station Eleven mm. and we have been snowed in recently. Uh, at the time of recording and it's a <laughs> pandemic and I realized there's a few things, a few skills in my life that I need to acquire including like, <laughs> making a fire was a major sure. one but also I was like I don't, if I were in that truck that they try to escape in multiple times, I don't know if I could drive it like I, mm. I don't know how to drive manual stick shift um, I think that I should probably somehow if I could borrow like a 1982 Chevy and tr- figure out how to drive in reverse, that's going to make me feel a lot better <laughs> Sure I almost feel like I'm obviously all of these movies that when they're done well, they kind of put you in the scenario of like, okay, what would I do if I was blank? And I almost wonder if it'd be worth it because that junkyard is so full of stuff to hide until morning. Mm. And then when it's morning, then go. Well, yeah, that, there's interesting. Um, there's a lot of cut scenes, which I, I, I we talk about this a lot. I think a lot of the movies we like lose a lot of stuff and i think that yeah. one of the, the sequences they lost was her attempting to hide in the mine and the mine is yeah. full of dead bodies yeah, they um, oh right right, right. yes yeah. too much yeah so, he's like I think you can get it on the blu-ray or something uh, yeah like that. They, it was too over the top. It's always what you hear Greg McLean again saying, which is interesting when you, this gets compared to torture porn stuff. He's just like, that was too gross. Uh, they had a, like a relationship between the girl and the guy that was ongoing. Yeah. And he's it's like, that was too on. much. He's like, you don't need that. You don't need it to be sad or they're all being murdered. <laughs> like, but it's yeah. also one of the things like, and that's why I think this movie is so effective. It's as Alicia said, it's so lean. Yeah. Like it knows exactly what it needs for you to be attached to these people. And it's enough that they're young. They're out to have fun. 
end, but not in like a weird, annoying way, like Friday the Thirteenth, yeah. which I've brought up a weird amount of times. Yeah, they're not they're not really season. jerks either, which no. I think the two thousands leaned into a bit too much sometimes, where they were like, uh, and often I think the opposite way, the torture porn sometimes leans too much to they're too innocent, and you're just like, ah, why mm-hmm. these guys? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's like a weird balance. But I think you're to go back to your kind of thesis, Becky. That's I think the stripped downness is what is great about a lot of the old exploitation because it was just mm-hmm. like yeah like road games like you say is just totally you, you this characters you're like yeah he's a trucker stacy keach a uh, trucker it's rear window on yeah, a truck yeah. and it's like if you think how do you do that when the trucks are moving yeah. they do yeah. it and it's very cool and it's it's yeah stacy keach and uh and jamie lee curtis totally worth yeah. your time that's my that's my film recommendation <laughs> outside of this one um the other thing i thought that was kind of wild about this is that because this was so effective and like scared the crap out of so many australians we were talking about the brad murdoch mm-hmm. um trial that was going on when mm-hmm. this film was released and this film wasn't released in the north of australia because the trial was going on and the judge was worried it would affect the outcome outcome of that trial yeah. that they would uh, there would be a mistrial declared because of that film which is just wild I mean, to me. all of the stuff around the real things is very interesting because that's also uh the the crater they filmed in there had been a murder there so the the people in the area were a little touchy and and it's very interesting because even greg mcclain says that the reason, unlike even like, you know, Fargo or something, a movie that says based on a true story that is only very barely based on a true story. He said it was almost out of respect that this touches on enough similar murders that they had to say it was based on a true story. Otherwise, it would seem rude to the real victim. Yeah, it's an interesting reversal to what usually happens. I didn't know that. I, yeah. mean, I did wonder watching at the beginning where it says this is kind of true, but that totally makes sense. Yeah, it's just it, so like he just feels aligned. like you, you can't. You can't show this without saying that stuff like this really Not happens. Not to Australians. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. to North Americans, but mm-hmm. Australians. And I would say British as well, where this this was a huge story because obviously some of the tourists were British. Um yeah, that makes sense. Australia also has a really unique point of view. Like, I've found that the way they've twisted a lot of these movies. So there's a movie from 2009 called uh, The Loved Ones. Mm, have you yeah, guys seen yeah. this one? No. Which it's, uh, Alicia, might be too much for yes. you, but it's a really <laughs> fascinating look. It's a it's a daughter and father who have been abducting young men to, like, basically Jeffrey Dahmer create mm. zombies for her to, like, have, have a boyfriend. quote unquote yeah. boyfriend. What they do to these people is really, really gross. But there's another angle to it where you're watching the guy who's been abducted with this family kind of try to deal with it. And then a friend of his, her brother was abducted by them previously. And it shows the grief and like what she's gone through having lost someone and not knowing what happened Mm -hmm. to them. It is the most fascinating back and forth where like you're getting like the emotional repercussion on the one side and then someone who's in that situation right now having this thing done to them. And you're just like, how does your brain go there? (laughs) Like, and, And how do I how do I as an audience member process sitting through this like torment really Mm -hmm. like it is always it's really interesting when like all of this sounds so distasteful and so not distasteful (laughs) but just depressing and morbid and psychologically fucked up and yet we do it you know like I'm with you Becky like I'm not gonna say I enjoyed Wolf Creek but man do I appreciate it I think even more so now 17 years after it was released than when I saw it initially. Um, yeah, there's that attraction to human psychology, to grief, to mourning, to terror, to torture. Like it is, it is, it's something I try to, I can't really grapple with. <laughs> 
obviously this is not something that would ever be nominated for an Academy Award for, but <laughs> however, it's I've, I've heard someone talk about how some of the more difficult to watch movies don't get nominated or win Oscars because people aren't willing to sit down and of watch course. them. Oh, they, yeah. like, I will say to go back to an episode you guys were talking about uh, that you were talking about many of you had not sat through Martyrs and Martyrs is yeah. an incredibly hard to watch movie. It's, it's good. But yeah, yeah. And I also think it's one of the best plot justifications of the amount of torture you see. Like it is a film about torture and violence. So, uh, and it's like about like religious, you know, beatification of that. It's interesting. Cause I agree. I, you know, I watched that on fast forward, but I'm like, <laughs> I, I believe that film does an incredibly good job of justifying the violence within it but it's hard yeah it's like you say what are you gonna do you gonna give that the palm door i don't know <laughs> exactly how do you acknowledge yeah. that all right well we're gonna go into a movie uh right after the break that it was a little more acknowledged for mm. being critically acclaimed although the things that happen in it are no less heinous however it's written by nick cave so you know <laughs> there's that you know what you're in for that's coming up after the break 
Yeah, I'm still grappling with it. I've seen it a number of times. But um, as you say, it is written by Nick Cave uh, and instructed by John Hillcoat. Their relationship goes back really far. They're obviously um, both Australians, although interesting enough, John Hillcoat went to McMaster University in Hamilton. Mm. Uh, so he has a really interesting Canadian connection and has made Canadian films um, and Canadian short films, um, but ends up back kind of tunnel, tur- tunneled back into the Australian film industry later in life. But he was directing um, a lot of music videos. So after you know really working on in the music video kind of world, he directed in 1988 uh, Ghosts, Ellipsis, of the civil dead ellipsis isn't on the title it's like ghosts dot 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 of the civil dead um which is this like australian genre film that starred nick cave while he was very much at the height of like his vim vendors greatness and uh the bad seeds i haven't seen it i'm trying to track it down i'm pretty excited to watch it won some interesting like australian film institute awards for production design Mm. uh and the proposition is actually only his kind of third narrative feature um, he's made quite a bit since then, but he had been working on the screenplay for a really long time and it was just, it wasn't hitting, which is interesting because that's how we talked about Wolf Creek as well. Uh, and he had always said he wanted Nick Cave to score the music. And so Nick Cave was getting impatient and, uh, eventually John Hilkett was like, fine, you take a try at the screenplay. Um, obviously it was, it was like a nicer gesture, but within three weeks, Nick Cave produced what is the proposition yeah. and from a screenplay level, um, I think it's phenomenal. Uh, the the pacing, the the way that the violence, similar to Wolf Creek, could have been so gratuitous. And I'm not saying it's not heinous, but it's not gratuitous. And then luckily we also get this stunning, and I really mean this, like this is, I'm a huge fan of Nick Cave, no surprises there. Um, this score, which I mean, MVP here is actually Warren Ellis and his um, violin. This score is haunting and it does so much to this period drama, this period horror film, uh, it just it anchors it. It makes it otherworldly. It it reminds me of murder ballads in some way, but it's even slower. Like the way Nick Cave sings the lyrics is unusual even for him. And I haven't even said what the film's about. No, whenever you're ready, you love this movie. So you know what? You go right ahead and you run with it. Um, it's about three brothers, the Burns brothers, who are kind of notorious criminals. Um, Arthur, who is played by Danny Houston in, I think, a really great role. Our lead, which is Charlie, played by um, Australian powerhouse Guy Pearce. And their much younger brother, Mikey, um, who I think is, it's not really said how old he is, but I was guessing maybe 16 or 17. Probably, Um, yeah. These are bad. Who who seems to be, he seems to be developmentally challenged. There's elements, yeah, yeah, there's perhaps an element of that. And, you know, it's kind of a Ned Kelly situation, but even more heinous. Charlie, the Guy Pierce brother, is captured alongside the, the little brother, Mikey. And um, Stanley, played by Ray Winstone, who is the kind of, I guess, the sheriff of this town, makes an offer where if he can deliver Arthur, the oldest brother, who is really the head of like the violence gang, um, Mikey's life will be spared. If he doesn't, he's going to murder his younger brother. So that puts the middle brother, Charlie, in a position where he has to murder his older brother in order to save the life of his younger brother. Stanley's wife is played by Emily Watson. This is such an incredible performance. They are obviously, she's English. They've come to this just desolate yet hauntingly beautiful landscape in Australia that is unforgiving. Um, and she's trying to like in her own way civilize it with her beautiful china teacups and her trying to this is a Christmas film. 
I love this is, dark. <laughs> this is maybe the darkest Christmas film. I, I really mean this. This is like, I can't think of, like, of course, Black Christmas is a dark Christmas. This is like, wow. I, as a Christmas film, I'm very excited about this. You know, she's trying to, like, <laughs> get a Christmas tree delivered. Like, she's trying to make it England. She has this rose garden in this place where no flower should ever grow. And so it's this kind of balance between the civilized and the uncivilized, the indigenous uh, people and the non-indigenous um, and it's such a delicate balance that Nick Cave and John Hill could um, achieve. And I think some of these performances are phenomenal. I'm a big fan. This is a film that Roger Ebert kind of wrote. Like, it, you can't, you want to so badly turn away and you can't. Like, you can't close your eyes. You can't pause it. You can't walk out. It's just demands full-on attention. And I think that's why maybe I would be attracted to a film that is a bit Peckinpah, a bit Leone, Leone, a bit, you know, Peter Weir, which are not necessarily films I love. And yet somehow for me, this is like the best of them. It's wonderful that you bring up this idea of all these Westerns and, you know, Peckinpah being quite possibly one of like the most violent but accurate of the westerns if you will like he was the one who like really tried to show the ruthlessness um that's exactly what they were trying to do here was they decided they wanted to create a australian western so the difference for them being that american is very much like there's a good guy there's a bad guy there's a white hat there's a black hat but the australian history is just so much more complicated than this that you genuinely do not know whose side you should be on at any time and that's kind of exactly what is happening here until that very last moment in that last scene, which I have to admit, I have now watched this movie twice and I did not watch that final scene again because I didn't have to. It is. It's hard. Yeah. And I, it's I mean, brutal. we've warned view, uh, listeners to this podcast and I would warn all viewers, but I do think this is a worthwhile film to watch. And I will say Agreed. that, you know, I think it, it's sexual violence. There's no getting around this. It is on the less gratuitous mm. side of which in some ways makes it more realistic, which I think is why it's so upsetting. But I also I, I mean, I think why it works is because you don't know uh, like what Charlie's deal is. You don't know how much Charlie was involved in the previous crimes and what the rift between Charlie and his family was. And it seems like his brother is a genuine psychopath, yeah. whereas Charlie is just kind of doing the life because that's what it is. Right. Oh, yes. I think that you realize that probably the line that Charlie did not want to cross yeah. was sexual violence, because that's the previous crime that made him leave was sexually violent. And when he comes in and sees it, he just. Yeah. It, no, you were correct. Wild. Thank you, Cam. That's a really good, uh, a really good take on that. Uh, we should really note of all the performances. This is a film that features David Kolpolil, which we lost recently. Um, I mean, we've talked earlier in this film about like iconic Australian films and obviously Walkabout, while not made by an Australian, um, which is a film that he starred in when he was very, very young and has since always worked in the industry. This, this film is really interesting. It starts with a few photographs as well as some text just kind of talking about how, one, this is a film that will be disturbing to Indigenous communities, not just because of its story, but because it shows images of um, people who have passed, which is something in Indigenous culture that uh, needs to be communicated um but also just i was i was interested to read how much the indigenous community and we have some really phenomenal indigenous actors including leah purcell and tom e lewis um who was in the chant of jimmy blacksmith in 1978 uh how much the indigenous community was like this is one of the more accurate depictions of that imbalance balance that struggle mm -hmm. that um that their culture uh was clashing with the civilizers it's an interesting thing too because they it's not necessarily the plot of the film but they put it like 
they highlight it very much on the yeah. sidelines of the film, which is interesting. Like they, it, it isn't, I mean, other than David Wenham kind of comes in and puts a bit more of a fine point on it, but generally it's kind of just about the conflict between various settlers. Um, but in the periphery, you see essentially <laughs> indigenous yeah. genocide and also the difference between some British authorities and others, because as much as Ray Winstone is, uh, you know, not the greatest guy on earth. You can sense that he at least understands that they have to live uh, with the indigenous people and not just yeah. kill Well, that them opening all. is so interesting because you really do have a, a lead character, um, like the foil of, uh, of Charlie, who is genuinely believes what he's doing is right and that he's trying to civilize people. But you also have someone who's very much committed to it's mm. better living through modern hanging. You know, like that's it's yeah. it's violence uh, to, yeah. to quell violence, yeah. right? So like, oh, and also like a misunderstanding mm -hmm. of violence. I think that's the whole thing where like he wants that kid to be flogged and right with yeah, he, like, he, like can't tries to protect him much and to then, his own danger. Um, yeah. we haven't even mentioned John Hurt. And this yeah, is which like is, yeah. when you get, I know. Oh, yeah. Well, John, Hurt, they almost killed John Hurt. It's not on purpose. Safe set. But. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of Je what's his name? Jelly yeah. Jelen Lamb. Jelen. It's like yeah. a play on Jelly and Lamb. Jell and Lamb. Uh, he's like um like a bush ranger sort of headhunter. He's also trying to catch Arthur. <laughs> he only has two scenes. It's his introduction and then his, I don't think this is a spoiler, phenomenal death. It is, this is unhinged John Hurt. I think that's really what attracted me to this film when I first saw it in 2005. was like, I have never seen something this scary. Permit me to introduce myself. My name is Jell on Lamb citizen of the world, you might say, an adventurer, and if I may be so bold, a man of no little education. He mm. is so willing in what would be, I think it's one of his final roles, isn't it? He wasn't around much longer after this. Yeah, He was around yeah. for about 10 years, but yeah, he, did, he didn't act figure. as much. So he didn't act he, as much, um, yeah. He's playing a character that is like he starts out being like, OK, he's kind of like, you know, he's like kind of a little loopy, whatever. And then he gets into it and you're like, oh, no, this man is not a nice human being. He's really he's, so again, supernatural. It reminded me a bit of like yeah. the killer in Wolf Creek yeah. where there's these the supernatural sure. element to him that by just virtue of being able to survive in a climate and a, on a land like this, you become less than human yeah. or more than human, whichever way you want yes. to go. Um, that's uh, and I I think that's an element of that's like an interesting and I think modern Australian myth making that you can tie back mm. to Wake and Fright as well, where it's not it's not that this land is evil. It's that this land was for indigenous yeah. people and they understood yeah. how to deal with it and that uh, it, for a colonial person to try to civilize and essentially twist them into a monster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's what makes them a monster and, and the civilizing forces. And it's again, it's that thing where most of these people, most of the settlers are compelled settlers, which is, and Ray Winstone's a great example of that. Like he, he push come to shove, he does not want to be there as much as he keeps saying, I will yeah. civilize this place. It's because somebody is making him do it. He, he doesn't want to be there. Uh, Emily Watson doesn't want to be there. Is it just uh, yeah, me, or because Guy Pierce refers to this as like one of his greatest roles to this day? He's yeah. like, I am so proud he's, of the work I did wrong. here, as he should sure. be. He's incredible in it. Um, yeah. But it always seems like both he and Emily Watson want to be in the movies that make them the most. Like they look like they're miserable, horrible <laughs> yeah. conditions. I know she because oh, yeah. Hillcoat really well, had to like talk to actors and be like, look, we're filming in not just in Queensland, mm -hmm. which is very hot. We're filming in high summer, not just yeah. summer. High summer. 
Um, and there's a certain clay field where they did some filming. Um, there were temperatures in excess of 50 degrees while they were filming. And like she, she was someone that he had a conversation with. And I think she was like, I can, I'm comfortable at, you know, in the twenties above thirties, I get a bit, you know, loopy. And it's like, okay, double that, double that, then put handmade wool and corsetry and like I think if all the men are wearing three layers of clothing, she might be wearing like four or five um, to be authentic. Yeah. That's where I'm like, maybe don't do the authentic costume. It's the same with poor Kate Winslet yeah. in Titanic. It's like, dude, give her a wetsuit. Yeah. Don't, don't give well, her like, they said somebody, that something. Ray Winstone stopped off in Dubai to attempt to acclimatize for a little while, and he said that didn't do it. It wasn't, it <laughs> I wasn't love the that. same. No. Ray Winstone is not a man built for the heat. As someone yeah. who's never, I've never been in that heat, like the hottest I've been in was this past summer it was 49 where my dad lives in british columbia and i'm picturing adding 10 degrees to that and i i can't imagine it but i'm sure that that affected (laughs) the performances and even the the physicality of trying to walk um when you see there's a, a scene where when emily watson is watching the young boy flog she passes out if you told me she really passed out <laughs> i'd be it? like yeah. yep that, yeah. that, that, yeah. it's just so effective yeah, yeah. um the flies and i know that like you would think it's special effects it's uh, not yeah. they didn't have to lure these flies at one point john hillcote was telling people <laughs> no, you can tell from how yeah, much they're like, on people that it's like, like this is, like, this is real like, uh, yeah ugh, you can smell this film you can yeah it's a dirty lived in film yeah oh yeah it's so sweaty and yeah those flies i mean i was like those extras i hope they got paid well because one guy is so covered in flies and i'm like for you to not flinch when you are covered (laughs) in flies is such a is such a but such a great way to show what that era must have been like like you must have just been like i'm used to a fly crawling all over me i don't care and yeah i don't like you say with the this guy pierce i think both guy pierce and emily watson are two people and in spite of the fact that Emily Watson is a British actress, they're they're people who are interested in the violence of colonialism in Australia in the movies they choose. Because she's also done this one that was pretty small called Oranges and Sunshine that is just a brutal like uh, court case one about essentially the like uh, residential oh, schools boy. of Australia and the the kind of mass killings and mass uh, capturing of children uh, for no reason. And it, yeah, so I think both of them are very committed to the ideas in this movie and again it's it's very interesting because guy pierce is like mostly <laughs> silent he, he's just <laughs> hanging out and watching what goes on it's very like almost like a narrator of a book um that going through these different places and yeah so he's it's a very gaunt cool, a very dude cool to role. begin with uh, but in this he's almost <laughs> yeah. like a hollow man like he's so yeah it's uh yeah. everything feels real okay on top of that all of the weapons are replicas. They handmade all of the clothes, including the buttons. Yeah, and my hard. favorite part, they were transported to set by mm. steam locomotive. I mean, it's almost kind of crazy. Like, it's laughable wow. at that point. But I, it's just, it's so remarkable. And you have that element, which I think is a production standpoint element. And when I think about Nick Cave writing the screenplay, it, I think it would be, like, to, to recent fans of Nick Cave, that might seem odd because he's just, like, a very urban albeit mystical person but this is um this is a guy who grew up in rural victoria so he grew up very much in a rural community in australia who by 17 i believe had spent time in jail for robbery was i 
addicted to heroin, had his father die while he was in prison at like as a teenager. Um, this is all like he was in a band at that point, but this is all before forming like the Bad Seeds and finding a refuge in Berlin. And it's just like reading his like really young, like his life as a young adult. I was just like, yeah, this is who writes a film like this. <laughs> like someone with that understanding mm-hmm. of isolation, of the land, of crime, mm-hmm. of um, drug addiction, of, you know, just like of mourning and death and escaping and then happened to also write an album called Murder Ballads, which I feel like this is like the lost track on Murder Ballads. <laughs> and did my favorite duet with Kylie Minogue. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where he went. Right yes, into that it. was his wow. mainstream moment. Um <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would love to see. I think they have done a live performance of this score. And if you can get it on vinyl, it's one of those rare soundtracks that um, does not deviate from what the songs are on the film whatsoever. Like, they really recreated it. I was listening to it the other night, and it's just, like, it's very, very scary mood music, but um, so effective. I think, though, what really works is the fact that you have people who are everybody's trying to accomplish something, but you have people who are genuinely trying to make the best of the situation. And that's like so encapsulated in Emily yeah. Watson, who's just like, yeah. it, like you said, the English Rose Garden. But she's she genuinely and she's trying to think the best of all of these people until it completely backfires on, on the back. She loves end, right? her husband, too. Like he yeah. is um, emotionally cut mm-hmm. off. Uh, he wants to protect her desperately and he knows that he can't. And so you watch them go through this Christmas meal where she's made a turkey and you know what's going to happen. And they're still going to go through this and 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 try to have a nice Christmas despite knowing that the <laughs> entire world is going to cave in yeah. on them. Um, there's a futility to this story that could, with a worse director and a worse screenplay, be claustrophobic and depressing and yet i find the futility in the story mm, uplifting somehow well they want i think that they yeah that's kind of they kind of want you to think that the that that all of this stuff going insane is maybe in the end a positive because i I mean it ends with the line well what are you going to do now which is like kind of a dying guy asking someone who killed him (laughs) what his plans are Yeah. yeah Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk a mo- just for a moment because I want to bring us back to Wolf Creek in this. So the uh, the AFI is the the Australian Film Institute is basically the equivalent of the Oscars for Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was up against Wolf Creek for best cinematography, best film, best screenplay, best everything. So that was included in there. Wow. So I will say that obviously the Australians understood what they had with Wolf Creek and they understand what they have with this. So yeah. it didn't win best picture, or best screenplay. But um, I don't know how many films Australia produced produces a year especially in the 2000s it's probably not a ton but there's really only like three or four films and they all appear to be like the same uh in each category and they all pay, mm-hmm. they're, they're pretty consistent of what they are so um it is interesting to see mm-hmm. both of these films put in this against each other in the same yeah. category yeah, yeah. they're very similar like yeah I, you wouldn't I expect that really didn't want to do wolf creek but i was like the only way i get the proposition <laughs> is to do like a mm-hmm. sacrifice that's how much i love this film <sighs> All right, I think that is probably just about everything for this one. Guys, this is our last episode of season three. This has been so much fun. What a way to end. (laughs) With a bang and a slash. (laughs) What what year is it again? 2022. Yes, 2022. 2022, right now, yes. Yeah, because we started this all the way back in 2020 when we were doing the TV show. So it's been, Mm -hmm. you know, it's been something. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, that having been said, what are our favorite movies from this year? What are we, what were the surprises? So, uh, 
Cam, do you have yours ready to go? Um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I got a couple. Uh, for new ones, uh, I think Noroi, you you and Trevor I'm introducing so that one to me. I definitely love that. I've gone on to watch quite a few by that director. They, now you've recommended it. But also, I will say uh, equally to uh, Alicia, I really liked Urban Cowboy, <laughs> which I <laughs> yeah. never would have in a million years watched. Um, and yeah, that really surprised me. I will also say that I, th- I really think a, a movie that I was never eager to go back to, but I did enjoy rewatching was the game, yeah. Yeah. which I, I it's just not one too. that I ever thought would be hold up to a rewatch. But yeah, I wasn't even on that episode. <laughs> I still rewatched it for the podcast. <laughs> How about you, Alicia? What were some big ones for you? The biggest one for me is probably Daughters of Darkness, which is uh, 1971 in our um, uh, it's like the second episode. And Kat Ellinger was such a phenomenal guest as someone who actually wrote a book on one film. So who who better are you going to get? But that was a film I've watched multiple times this year, and I'm just kind of obsessed with. And then I'm going to say Tales of Beatrix Potter because <laughs> I think that was a surprising title to have on this podcast my understanding of how these episodes perform is it's been a popular one um it it is if you need some you meditation and just some downtime putting that on a film with no dialogue and just beautiful uh russian inspired ballet and um incredible costuming and then a gorgeous score kind of is it may be equivalent to doing a half hour of yoga i hope yeah um and then it's on our channel so how could i not shout it out of course mouse hunt is going to be the yeah. title that i always <laughs> am going to be promoting um family friendly yet even if you're not of the family friendly orientation dark and disturbing and also uplifting and a great Christopher Walken cameo. That is very true. Uh, I think for me, um, The Long Good Friday, as mm, someone who yes. um, studies a lot a lot of movies and watches a lot of movies, it's very rare now I'm surprised by movies and I don't know where they're going and I feel out of control and I felt out of control in that movie. I love that. Yeah, good point. Mm. I, I would also say Out of the Blue. We didn't even mention Out of the Blue. That's the other one I was okay. going to say is Sorry. Out of the Blue. Yeah, was, it's, it's a fine, but, but also the fact that we paired it with Hey Babe, which was <laughs> Also, another big like, oh my gosh, yeah. I think I love this movie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Such yeah. a what a what a surprise! And we did those episodes back to back in the time where we recorded the episode of Out of the Blue and today, which is firmly 2022. <laughs> so, so they tell me um, that restoration is going to be available soon to home video. Not quite there yet, or maybe it is through the BFI, but we'll be showing theatrically in Toronto should movie theaters actually open up on the schedule that we've been told they will be. Um, Because of course that episode we talked about how it was impossible to see somebody please fix this restoration issue and get it to us. And it it happened Mm -hmm. in the interim. So that's kind of exciting. So you can see it now and cry along with us, but you're not going to be crying coming to season four because I just can't wait until people see what we have planned. Uh, It's a fantastic schedule. I'm so excited for most of it. My partner took one look at what we're proposing and he was like, I want to watch that, 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 that. And I was like, honey, if I wait for you, I'm never going to get through any of these. But uh, yeah, I'm so excited for people in season four. It's going to be super fun. So we'll be back with you soon. Cam Maitland, once again, thank you so much for an awesome season. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, excited to do more. Excellent. And Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us. You will not be with us as much next season because yeah, you're going to be doing a bunch for the TV series, but you will be with us. Thank you so much for joining us on this one. Thank you. If you want a more positive Nick Cave cameo, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne <laughs> might be the only film he appears in where someone isn't murdered. <laughs> I was going to say, if you want more uh, miserable Guy Pierce barely talking, The Rover is another great Australian. Oh, yeah. 
yeah. dystopia where he mumbles around uh, the outback. Is no one at bringing people. up Ravenous where he tries to out mumble Gary Oldman? I love that film. <laughs> True. I mean, I mean, I guess he's kind of a miserable mumbly guy, God, but that's, that's why we love him. Too. That is season four. Oh boy, we might have to talk Ravenous. So, good. <laughs> so many good movies, man. There's just a treasure trove. Just wait till we get to 1985. That is just like, how do you even choose mm-hmm. treasure trove of riches? All mm-hmm. right, and you can join us probably in a few weeks for season four. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland. And today featured Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland as guests. Supervising producer is Emily Gagné. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kamaria. Creative consultant was Ryan Maines. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.